Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. So, um, nice that some of you came. A little bit of snow. Anyway, uh, so today we talk about disorders, impairments, and memory. I think it's something that people really, I think it's important uh, that we think about these things. Partially because if you live long enough, it happens to everybody. Uh, but also, I think it's one of the things that really interests us because it, it's such a part of being a person, such a part of being a human is, is cognition, is memory. And then when you see someone lose it around you, or you just hear about cases, it, it, it's, it's really kind of, I can't think of the right words. I was going to say humbling, but that's not even the right word. But I think you know what I mean. Sad. Well, it's sad in a way, but it's not even just that. It makes you realize how important your memory is. Maybe it's, That's part of it, but... I've gone through it twice. Yeah? Both my parents. Yeah. You know, and I mean, I've gone through it with my dad had brain cancer, and he would just forget stuff. Like, it was gone. Uh, and then it would come back. And that's the strange... That, that was a strange thing to see. Because uh, it'd get better and worse. Uh, and that was really... It's an odd thing to see, you know. And you realize how much of someone's memory is what makes them who they are. Um, so this... Here's a guy. Charles de Souza, Young guy, 38 years old when this picture was taken. Uh, he was found uh, by uh, the police in Hawaii. In Honolulu. Face down on the beach. Um, and he had no ID. So this sounds already like a movie, right? He's got no ID. And he has no ID. He says his name is Charles de Souza. He claims it's 1988. Except it's 1996. Uh, on the CMS, you will find the New York Times article about this. Take a look at it. It's a short read. It's very interesting. Um, He claimed he was supposed to be going to Haiti, except he was in Hawaii. He claimed he lived in North Manchester on Long Island, except there's no town called North Manchester on Long Island. There is, however, Manchester Street in Massapequa, New York, which is on Long Island, so he remembered something, he just didn't remember the right thing. Thanks for showing up. Um, so, and he thinks it's 1988. He doesn't know who he is, and it's actually upsetting him. Like, this is something where he doesn't recognize, he doesn't know his name. He thinks his name is Charles de Souza. Uh, he has no idea. He, he, he says he's from a town that doesn't exist. So he goes on TV in Hawaii, and it's picked up all over the place. And it's, it's also picked up by New York Newsday, which is a, and also the New York Times. Uh, and his mom sees the picture and says, that's my son, Philip. <laughs> and that's not his name. His name is, I don't think I even pronounced that. It's, uh, it's I want to say Kutahar, but I think it's actually in the, in the New York Times article in the CMS, it's actually explained how to pronounce it. 
Now, the interesting thing about this guy is he's actually been to Haiti and Brazil because he used to work for the U.S. Foreign Service. Pictures of him surfaced with 1996 presidential candidate Bob Dole. He had worked as a White House intern. He had worked with the U.S. Senate. He had worked for the CIA. Of course he worked with the CIA, yes. Yes, yes, this now immediately makes you think, you start looking for the black helicopters and all this kind of stuff. They did. CIA did it too. Thing is, to this day, he doesn't know who he is. He now knows, he's learned that this is his name. No one knows where he gets this name from, Charles. Interesting thing is, D'Souza is a, is a Portuguese name, and he actually can speak Portuguese. He speaks four languages. He didn't know he could speak Portuguese until his brother got on the phone with him and started speaking Portuguese to him to see if he could still speak Portuguese, and he just spoke, and, well, with Portuguese, there's people with him who are like, you speak Portuguese? I guess so. <laughs> Seems I do. Also, he speaks German and Italian and French and English. The best guess is he probably had a case of meningitis, which disoriented him, this is a guess. And then he got robbed. Because he was beaten up pretty badly, too. So he got, he got beaten up pretty badly, um, and his wallet was stolen. This is an exceedingly rare case, because this guy has also lost a lot of semantic memory. Not just the episodic stuff. He's also lost things from before the accident and after. Usually you just can't form new memories you keep the old ones. He can't, he has no, he's got nothing. He's got really, some of the semantic memory spared, but a lot of it's gone, obviously. He didn't know he could speak Portuguese. He didn't know his own name. But something is spared there because he was able to remember vague things. Like a fake town, Manchester, New York, except it turns out North Manchester on Long Island. It turns out he lived on Long Island, but on North Manchester Street in Massapequa. So there's something there that's, that's too strange of an error for it to be a coincidence. I often wonder whatever happened to this guy. He was just a strange case, and you don't hear about him again. How old was this case? Oh, he was thir- how old is this? 1996, this happened. So this guy now is, you know, uh, pushing 60. Right? He's 55 years old. Um, and he still doesn't know who he is. And I haven't heard anything since, so it's not like, and this is one of those cases where you would think this would be picked up by a neuropsychologist or something like that. And I'm sure people tried. It may be the case that his family just said, no, let him leave us alone, which you know, often happens. How was the meningitis related? I'm just guessing. That's, that's, a, that's a guess, by the way. But the idea is he, he, gets, he gets to Hawaii. He has something like meningitis, which can happen very quickly and debilitate very quickly. Um, so the idea is that he's just randomly wandering on a beach after he gets off an airplane. And then he gets the shit kicked out of him by a couple of guys that take his wallet and they just leave him basically leave him dead. So he was beaten up pretty bad. The idea of the meningitis is the idea of like, how did he get there? What? So it's like maybe he's something like meningitis. It could also just be that he's beaten up off the plane, but like, why would he, the thing is, no one saw this, and this was on a big beach in Honolulu, so it was in the middle of the night that he's just wandering along the beach, that's the idea. So St. Mary's could be, could be anything. Could be anything.
could be the, the KGB drugged him. Actually, the KGB, but then it's the FSB. Um, oh, by the way, conspiracy theorists love this guy because they think it's evidence of something. Because uh, they have. They obviously wiped his memory. <laughs> <laughs> they wiped his memory. They wiped his memory. They wiped his Well, you know, if you beat somebody along on the head enough, you can wipe their memory. Um, the problem is they can't form any new ones either. Now, think about this guy. Is he doesn't form new ones, and he can't. He doesn't have any old ones. It's a lot of semantic stuff. Not. He didn't recognize. It. He 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 learned over time. Apparently, and there's very little detail about this because he's his family. I think seems to have kept it kind of quiet, which is fine. It's their business. He learned that that was his mom, but he didn't recognize that that was his mom. It's like, you're talking to your mother. Okay, I believe you. I'll take your word for that. The one that gets me always is, so you speak Portuguese? Apparently I do. You know. Yeah, so it reminds you of the beginning of the born identity. The difference between born identity, of course, is Jesus is born figure than who he is. And he can learn new facts about the world. You can go through the so, just an interesting case to start with. Um, <coughs> a lot of the discoveries we've made about memory have come from work with amnesics. Uh, the episodic semantic distinction, a lot of it is made clear by stuff uh, from work with amnesics. Uh, the procedural versus declarative thing as well. Uh, implicit explicit memory, uh, the phonological loop, and the visual spatial sketch pattern um, are all results that come from, that are confirmed, like the idea of these things being different kinds of memory, are, are, then they've all been supported by the idea, but by, by work with amnesics. Right? Now, there are some problems working with amnesics. Uh, the first one is taxonomy. How do you classify amnesics? These are such rare disorders that we can't really classify them like we classify other kinds of problems that people have, other kinds of medical, psychological problems, etc. You talk about anterior brain, retro brain, amnesia, those kind of things, but it's very difficult when you have such a small number of cases to actually build up a taxonomy. There's also individual differences. You know, you think HM is the classic enemy, right? And then I talked about KC. Now, the thing with KC is he doesn't have a whole lot of memory from before. Uh, he's what Philip Kudahar, Charles D'Souza, Jason Bourne has the same kind of thing where he can't form it. He doesn't really have a whole lot of stuff from before he was, uh, before his injury either. Some little vague things, not too much. Interesting thing with KC is he has, he has metacognition. He knows he has a memory problem. He's learned that. His typical response when you ask him, "Would you like to?" These were called the list of words I gave you five minutes ago. Is I can, if you'd like, I can guess. So he knows he has a memory problem. He's also a really flat affect. He doesn't he doesn't have any highs or any lows. It makes a lot of sense. When you have no memory to put, no context to put anything in, how could you be happy or sad? It's really disturbing, right? And then how do we interpret stuff? I mean, HM makes the episodic semantic distinction, explicit and implicit distinction, like it shows those things to be true, even long-term and short-term, Atkins and Schifrin. But those all can't be the same, can't be true. 
They, they all overlap. So interpreting stuff's even harder. And of course, application of things you find from cases that are cases that you didn't design. These aren't experiments you designed. These are sad experiments of nature. These are somebody getting sick. These are somebody uh, get it, having a, having a uh, stroke, right? Tumor. My, my brother-in-law had uh, viral meningitis a couple of years ago. And I remember texting with him while he was in the hospital. And he was seemed perfectly fine to me. He could carry on a conversation. He was making jokes about how much he was enjoying the morphine. <laughs> you know, everything was fine. Um, on the other hand, when he, like, my brother-in-law is the hardest working person in Canada, and he lives in Toronto, uh, sorry, lives in London, but he basically works in Toronto, so he gets up every morning and drives to Mississauga, and then drives home. He, he was feeling a little bit sick, apparently. He drove home on the 401 at 7 o'clock at night, stopped to get something to eat, as he always did, apparently. He thinks. He wasn't sure, because he got home and he said to my sister and to my mom, I don't feel very well, but my mom said, well, you work really hard, you're probably coming down with something. He said, yeah, I really don't remember how I got home. <laughs> he was driving in the 401. So procedurally, he gets to drive a car efficiently, but he had no idea how the hell he got home. Yet, so they went into the hospital, they took care of him. But the thing is, um, so he's got all this episodic problem at that point. Yet, I was texting with him, and he seemed like Andrew. He just seemed totally normal. I could really pull up those texts sections. Really weird, right? So, how do we apply that kind of thing where it's like, to me, looking at one kind of memory, he's fine. To the doctors, it's like, wow, he's missing a whole bunch of stuff. And of course, to my sister, my God, he's going to die. Which he did, he thought. Didn't see And now I, I actually, I, 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 I make a lot of, uh, I make a lot of jokes. So really it comes down to the fact that we have no control. We just have no control. Which is inevitable because we aren't doing these horrible experiments ourselves. Again, I think back to when my father was sick and we were watching, it was the 2007-2008 playoffs, and my dad uh, was a big Montreal Canadiens fan as well, and we were watching the games, and it was amazing because he would be out all day, we'd go into the hospital room, um, me and Andrew, and my mother, and I remember going in there with Lisa beer and a pizza, because uh, we were going to watch the hockey game. And the nurses were cool, they said, yeah, sure, it's fine. Dad had been at all, and we were watching TV, little TV, just watching, waiting, the national anthem came on, my dad woke up and stood up, which is the weirdest thing. Um, then he sat down and he looks at me and goes, who's, who's 31? I said, it's a third old guy, it's 35. I heard of him. Where's the French guy? I said, you mean the guy from France, Christophe Huet, that we traded three years ago? Nah, he wasn't traded. I said, no, dad, he actually was. But then he could watch a game, and he could comment on it and all that stuff. He just thought it was a team from 2006 he was watching. Trying to figure out who the hell some of these guys were, you know. Where's 
Who's 49? I'm going to pizza. Nah, Brian Savage. That Brian Savage will let him go in 2000. So it's interesting, right? So you see this, and you don't have any control. So we really, we're dealing with case studies when we talk about amnesia. That's all we can do. Um, and they're thankfully rare. And that's usually an accident uh, or something like uh, a bump on the head or a stroke. The very rare case of HM is, is the, is, HM is, <laughs> some interesting cases. Uh, Larry Squire talks about some of these cases in a paper of his. Um, it almost looks like a surgery. HMs was a surgery. It's a case that Larry Squire, I forget the name of the, uh, the initials of the case, but this guy was fencing, and a sword went right through his eye and right through his hippocampus. It screwed it up. But it looked like a surgery. Happily, again, those are rare. <laughs> HM, of course, HM had, has this beautiful, you can actually look at HM's brain online now. They sliced it up, but it's public domain. Very cool. Uh, and you can see that they took out CA1 of hippocampus. It's a pretty operation. It looks like it was done, it was done by a professional, but it almost looks like somebody said, you know, we'd be good if we found out what happened to CA1. Let's remove it. It's that precise an operation. But typically, we're dealing with like KC, a bump on the head, a guy that's riding a motorcycle without a helmet and gets thrown 30 feet in the air. That'll hurt you. That'll hurt me with a helmet, by the way. SP's a famous case. This is a stroke patient. Uh, Schneider's case, I think? This is both medial temporal lobes, left hippocampus, and lots of the surrounding area, but not the amygdala. Um, after the stroke he had, um, he had trouble naming objects. And it's a very typical, I think I've told you guys this, a typical neuropsychological test, which is what is this? And the most common thing that you'll see neuropsychologists do, or, or neurologists do, they have their keys in their pocket and they have a pen, and they'll say, what is this? What are these? And the person, if they can't name them, will be able to name a whole bunch of things about them. That's what's always very interesting. Those are things you use to open a lock. Mm -hmm. What are they called? Uh, it's an apparatus that's used when one opens a door. Well, keys are used to open doors. But what are these? These are things that you use to open a door. So they can't name them, but they can tell you what they do. Or a pen. And I did this one with my dad. I said, hey, dad, what's this? And he goes, it's that writing thing. And I said, what's a pen? He goes, yeah, it's a thing, a pen. You write things with a pen. I said, yeah. So what's this? He goes, it's like a pencil. <laughs> it's not like it, but what is it really? He goes, well, you know, like a crayon. He couldn't name it. Right, very specific kind of deficit. This guy has had uh, SP. Guy? Yeah, guy. Mechanic. Uh, had retrograde and retrograde amnesia. So stuff after the accident, stuff before the accident or the, the incident. Couldn't remember episodic stuff. So this is the same kind of deficit that KC has. This is likely a hippocampal issue. But he can't recall old stuff either, which is really pretty interesting. But you can have a conversation with him. 
You really can't, because it's all working memory, and that's spared in this case. And that's, in fact, it's almost always the case that working memory is spared. Famous case, Clive Wearing. There's a, there's a, a documentary from the BBC about Clive Wearing that I pulled from YouTube. It's on the same so I'm going to take a look at it. It's really interesting. Um, Clive Wearing is a... a, a, a uh, or was a really important TV present, presenter in the UK. And he talked a lot about music. He was, he was a musician. Okay, so he would present things about like uh, specials about orchestras and he'd do, do like history of music kind of TV shows. He was a big deal. He wrote symphonies. And then uh, he got encephalitis, brain swelling. He apparently came home, reported to his wife that he wasn't feeling very well, and he woke up not knowing anything. So he has pervasive amnesia, uh, both episodic and semantic. He doesn't recognize who his wife is, really. And his wife is an amazing woman because she's stayed with him the whole time. Um, and that's pretty cool. So he's got semantic and episodic impairment. Basically, his temporal lobes dilated and got, got bigger, and his hippocampus was destroyed. This is a lot of times what happens is if you get this kind of swelling, Pressure goes on things. This is what happened with my dad's brain tumor. The pressure would, would build up on something and would be, be uh, either destroy it or make it not functional. His hippocampus is gone. So he became a very famous case. And you guys may have heard about him when out of class because he's sort of a classic example. And also because he was famous and because his wife has basically consented to, yeah, you know what? Let's let something good come of this. This is what happens with a lot of these cases. The families are like, okay. Let's let something good come of this. At least we can help science. Right? So this poor guy, um, watch that video. It's really striking. It's touching and sad and kind of amazing all at the same time. Thought I'd like most of my classes. <laughs> all right. So it's Clyde Wearing, famous case. So what kind of patterns of performance do we typically get in people with amnesia? Well, first of all, retrograde amnesia, that's, the, that's losing past memories. That's the rarer one. Clive Wearing has that, SP had that, KC. HM didn't. That's typically not yet. You typically are able to remember stuff pre-incident, whatever that incident is. Very common, though, is anterograde amnesia. You can't form any new memories. Now, there's always some retrograde amnesia from just before the incident, whatever that incident is. Right? I remember playing high school football. A friend of mine well, I wasn't playing actually. Then. A friend of mine got hurt, got got his bell rung pretty severely, and he suddenly you know, he had really bad concussion, and he couldn't remember a lot of stuff for a while. Uh, he couldn't remember. He went back into the huddle and he looked at the apparently looked at the quarterback and said, "Are we on offense or defense?" He said, "We just scored a touchdown. Just hit somebody." Ah, great sports. So. They kick the extra point, he, and then on the sidelines, he's screaming at the coach. Which you don't do in high school. You don't do in the pros. You really don't do it in high school. And he's screaming at the coach, where the hell did we get these uniforms? Because there's a special, in London, each year there's a, there are games at, uh, the, at Western. And like 
5,000 people go to these high school football games, and everybody puts on their best. Most teams get brand new uniforms for those games because it's a competition not only about playing, but also about how good you look and how well you perform and your sportsmanship and all this stuff. So they have brand new uniforms on, and he, Donnie, my friend Donnie, didn't remember getting them because it happened that morning. And then he's screaming, I'm not number 33, I'm number 32. It's like, no, you're 32 in basketball. In football, you were 33. And we had not, you know, stupid high school crap, we had had a falling out. We were very good friends back again, obviously we're almost, we're almost 50. Um, and we had had a real falling out, though, we really, I would say mortal enemies, mortal high school enemies, you know what I'm talking about. And he's screaming, though, at this point, I want to talk to Broadback, I don't trust anybody but Broadback. It's like, it's like putting me down from the stands, and I'm like, uh, you know, let's go, man. What's going on, man? I said, you got hit pretty bad. You should sit down. You should. I think they're going to take you to the hospital. Why? Because you don't know why you're here. One of them, you know. And apparently, and he, and it was funny because he suddenly two years of his memory of how much he we hadn't got along. It's gone. Right? Weird. And then he apparently the doctor says to him, the, the neurologist says, okay, because he said I feel fine. I feel fine. And the neurologist says, okay, uh, you're a hockey fan, right? He said, yep. He said, what's your favorite team? He said, Montreal Canadiens. He said, me too. If you can name the number and the player, everybody on the roster, I'll let you go. He goes, ah, it's easy. So he starts, and he starts naming the team from 1978, and it's 1983. And he said, yeah, that's really good. When you were in grade 8, not 8, but you're not in grade 8. You're in grade 12. So, no, you can't go again. Right. And that's a, I mean, and Donnie doesn't remember any of that to this day. I was out with him a couple weeks ago in London. Uh, you see, on Facebook, you see me, there's this guy, pictures of a bunch of us in a bar. He was one of the guys there. And he got, God, he got hit hard. So he had both retrograde and anterograde. Short term, he's fine. Now he's a school principal. Um, so you always get a little bit of both from any kind of incident. Right? Anybody here who's been in a car accident or something like that, you probably don't remember a little bit before and a little bit after, if you get your bell rung at all. But typically, this is the problem. Typically, and retrograde isn't the issue. That's less common. But what happens? When did Vivek come back? Oh, a couple weeks later, he's in the hospital. And then eventually, all semantic stuff was like he could still speak, he could still do schoolwork. He was a pretty bright guy, he still is. So that was all fine. It was remembering things like, I'm not Dave's brother. Dave Broadbeck is no longer my best friend. In fact, I've been very mean to him. It's high school shit. doesn't matter. Um, I would say it's probably my fault, but it really wasn't. Um, it really, really wasn't. Everybody was a dick except for me. But, uh, but the thing is, he... It all came back to him. He didn't remember right after the thing and screaming at the coach. I mean, which was funny. Because the time the coach didn't know something. The coach was, if you take it back, high school football players don't go up to their coaches and scream at them. On the sidelines in front of 5,000 people. And it's swearing. and so loud that the whole stadium here. You're stupid. Then I'm not going to say the words he said. But, and he would say all the horrible things we'd say about this coach behind the coach's back. The coach I'm sure knew. But... That you didn't say in public, 
especially so loud and people are judging you on your sportsmanship. We didn't win any trophies that year. <laughs> we probably didn't win any. Yeah, a couple, couple weeks later. But if, if he were here right now, he'd tell you he doesn't remember getting hit. And he doesn't remember that game at all. Like, it's gone. And he doesn't remember, because people told him later, you know, you asked to speak to Dave Broadbeck. He's like, really? <laughs> Why did I do that? But we were really close friends up until the middle of grade 11. And this was in the music All right. Spirit functions. Implicit tasks such as priming, ability to learn a new skill, those are there. And we talked about that with... The, the example agent and Brenda Miller with a mirror tracer, right? Oh, sorry, yeah, of course. When you say learn a new skill, do you mean yeah. like procedural stuff? Mm -hmm. Uh, is it all, uh, yeah, it's procedural. Yeah, it's procedural. So it's like you could learn how to play ping pong, but you never remember learning how to play ping pong. <laughs> Stuff like that. Like, which is really, it's, it's so hard for us to imagine because it all works so seamlessly that, that, that it just makes sense that you would remember learning to play ping pong and that you can play ping pong. You know, there's very few things that we can't remember having ever learned. Learning how to speak our first language is probably is one of the few. Learning how to count, things like that. Those are so basic and we do them when we're so young. But other stuff, you know. Uh, typically working memory is spared. Um, so you can have a conversation with somebody and they seem totally normal. They can do um, spatial tasks, no problem. And if you can have a conversation with somebody, all the four parts of working memory are probably working together. Um, semantic memory, even KC can learn new stuff, and KC has some pretty severe damage, but he can learn new facts about the world. Uh, he doesn't know he's learned them. And I'll talk in a second about how that's been done. So declarative stuff, declarative information is I, it's, it's basically a sense. That's declarative memory. I do this, he does that. So Tolling has done this interesting thing with um, KC, because he shows him a picture, and he has a sentence underneath it. And the sentence, it's, it's a caption, okay? And it's word, it's a it's sentence completion task. So it's like, he shows him a picture of a, of a policeman shooting somebody, and it says the policeman shoots the blank. And of course the word is assassin, because Tolling gets the word assassin, and every experiment he does is somehow. And after serious training, at first it's like, I, I, I don't know what to put. And then what did they try? Is they tried doing stem completion instead of just sentence completion. So they put A, S, S, blank. Now we can do it. Because you've restricted the errors. There's very few other, there's other, very few other possibilities here. Now you might say, well, that's the only way you can complete that sentence. Well, they tried it with other sentences that he hadn't been taught before. And this is now, this method's been. Uh, Used a lot by uh, Stephen Hammond, who's a uh, was a was an involving graduate student and a buddy of mine actually, uh, who's uh, at Emory University in Atlanta. And Stephen uh, alone, Larry Squire, done this with like twenty other patients. So it is doable. You can you can learn some sort of new things, but practically that doesn't mean much. It says something, but it doesn't for, for practical purposes. You can't learn any new sort of declarative content.
Um, well, why? Why, do, why are people amnesic? <laughs> yes, I know they got a bump in the head, but what's the problem? It looks like it's difficulties in everything. There's interference, there are retrieval problems, and even in coding. So sometimes it probably never even gets in. This actually should remind you quite a bit of what happens when I talked about really old people typically with the general sort of cognitive slowing, what the older people get. Uh, remember, interference was a really big issue. Paying attention to unimportant detail was a big issue with older people. So this is the same kind of issue. It's also probably more, more than anything, I think it's consolidation. It's a hippocampal issue. So you can't send items off for processing because you don't you have the processing unit, basically. Right? It's kind of like if I took... No, I'm not going to use that analogy. It's that analogy. Forget it. I, was gonna, I had a computer analogy, but it's so... I need to correct it so much that it stops working. Well, yeah, let's go with that. What if your hard drive's full? You ever had that, right? Can't put anything else in your hard drive, and you don't know how to delete things somehow. Drag, drop, add two more drive. But you can't save anything. The computer still works, but it can't learn anything new. You can't install any new software. You can't save any new information. All the old stuff's still there. So it's that kind of idea, but it's not like a per it's not like KC or or, or HM's brain was full. There are sometimes when people have semantic issues. Asking the person, for example, this is this is a real, and I think I said this early on. This seems like a bizarre question. What's a cat? Well, we all know what a cat is. Even if your idea of a cat, my idea of a cat, are totally different. I imagine the cat we had in the movie Tron. This comes to mind. Cooper. He was a cool cat. Named after Agent Cooper on Twin Peaks. I immediately picture Cooper. What constitutes a cool cat? Because he was awesome. <laughs> the awesomeness, mostly. Uh, he learned his name. He would come when I called his name. Uh, he would lie down on command. <laughs> well, I, I got this cat. I didn't want to get a cat. Then Isabel brought a cat home. So it's like, okay, one cat, that's great. And then like two years later, she, I came home, there were two more cats. It's like, we got three cats, why do we have all these cats? <laughs> so we had, we had three cats, it was fine, it actually turned out okay, except everything smelled like this. But, um, <laughs> the amount of money we spent on cat litter alone was unreal. But the interesting thing is that with him, we first got Cooper, and I was like a PhD one senior. And I, I said, I'm learning, and I'm doing my PhD, I'm doing it about animal learning and cognition. If I can't train this animal, and it's great, but like, you can't train the cat, it's like I can train it. And it took about 30 minutes, and I had a delay on him, he'd lay down. And I, I could call him, and he'd come. Oh, yeah, he was also, he used to be a street cat, like for six months, he lived on the streets. And then he was rescued, like a rescue mission, so we got a rescue mission. So he had this kind of like, he wasn't aloof like most cats are. Like, he liked being around people to a point. I think it was because, like, hey, free food now. I'm going to hunt. But he also had this kind of like, uh, he could scare other animals away. He was only like this big. We had raccoons lived at Toronto downtown. Raccoons underneath our back porch. We'd go outside and go, I'm in my way. <laughs> we got the other cats, and they were big, fat, stupid cats. 
<laughs> like they really were, they were big and fat and stupid. And he wouldn't fight with them. He hit each of them once. <laughs> he didn't use his claw, his claw, he had claws. He didn't use them. He just looked at one of them once, came over to take food, made three balls. He just went one and one. He slapped him in the head. He did it with the other cat too, and they didn't bother him ever again. So he was kind of a cool cat. So that's a cool cat. But what is a cat? So I think it's Cooper. Uh, Maddie probably thinks it looked cute, the cat we had for a long time. Uh, our cats, of course, are named after TV show characters. Um, and you all think about different things, but we all, it's, we all know what a cat is. But what if you lost the ability to name, not just name a cat, like I was talking about, but knowing what a cat is, knowing what a pencil is, knowing what a desk is. Wow, so losing semantic knowledge. This does happen, it's exceedingly rare. These tend to be temporal lobe mediated. These are exceedingly rare cases. People will have episodic memory that's intact. I remember this time when I was with this, uh, our, our cat was doing this and blah, blah, blah. And you say, what's a cat? I really don't know. don't know what a cat is. And you just told me a story about a cat. Oh, yeah, it was great. Wonderful story. What's a cat? I have no idea. That to me is almost worse. <laughs> somehow. I don't know which is worse, but I think that's worse. I, don't know. I think getting neither of them is my goal. <laughs> Going that way. Sometimes working memory, too. Again, usually intact. Sometimes there are issues. Uh, this is, in fact, how we found out that the phonological loop and the visual spatial sketch pad are actually separate things, was through uh, damage. Uh, this tends to be parietal damage. Yeah. So one gone, not the other. That's it, as, as odd as that whole separation between visual spatial sketch pad and phonological loop sounds when I talked about the other day. This is the evidence. Comes from these kind of cases. All right, let's talk about something depressing. Um, let's talk about Alzheimer's. So here's a normal here's a diagram of a normal brainish, but it doesn't. It's not purple in that color. And then the Alzheimer's patient has these uh, neurofibrillary tangles and these amyloid plaques. Basically, in essence, what happens is these tangles literally choke off the neuron. More than half of all the cases of dementia are from Alzheimer's disease. Uh, some interesting facts here. More than two times more women than men. This is more than likely because women live longer than men. It's, hypoth it's been hypothesized that Alzheimer's is just a natural, that if you live long enough, everyone would get it. Who knows? So what happens? Um, so basically the tangles uh, and the plaques, the red plaques, they end up in essence, choking off the neuron. And those of you guys that took brain behavior know that neurons need to, when they synapse, um, if they don't synapse, they die. So once one neuron dies, another neuron can die, another neuron can die, etc. And when they're getting literally choked off, they can't release the neurotransmitter, 
where it has to no longer synapsing, no, no longer get the release of what's called NGF neural growth factor. Of that neural growth factor, cells die. Um, this is massive cell death. This is on a, on a ridiculous scale. You're basically getting lesions everywhere. It's like you're getting, it would be the same as if you had tens and thousands of strokes. You get holes in your brain. It's, people call it a cortical dementia um, because your cortex, you basically what happens is this happens in the cortex and it works its way down. The outside in. Um, and they literally start to go everywhere. So first thing that goes is higher cognitive functioning and then eventually it gets to the point where you can't breathe anymore and you die. It's really... It's, a, it's not a happy thing. It's pretty scary. How genetic is the Very little of it seems to be genetic, which is interesting. There is a, a kind of it is. About 1% of cases are, can, can be tied to like a certain genome. But it, it's really rare that that's the case. I mean, I'm not saying it's not a genetic component, not being about major interaction. But it's not like it's something that the standards of Alzheimer's case, 99% of them are not something that is something like, say, Huntington's is an example where it's just a gene. There, is, there are about 1% of cases where it's a, it's a, a couple of bad genes. But it's not a little bit. I heard this actually starts in your 50s. It can't. It yeah. can start earlier. It can start in your 30s, start in your 20s. That's rare early onset Alzheimer's, but it does happen. Oh, yeah? I, I watched this documentary. There was this guy, I think he was in his late 40s, early 50s. Yep. And he already has advanced Alzheimer's. Oh, yeah, that happens. It's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of these things, too, where the, the, the problem is that it starts to show up in the 50s and 60s if you're to see it, right? And you get diagnosed. But, well, frankly, as I talked about the other day, you get sort of general cognitive slowing after 40. Like it, it, it's not, it literally is noticeable, too. Like I mentioned the other day, I, I, I'm not as quick as I once was. I'm still I'm doing fine. But things aren't quite on the tip of my tongue all the time like they used to be. I don't care about it. It's no big deal. I don't need to go get any more on But maybe I do. <laughs> this is part of the problem, right? That at first, it just looks like getting older. You know, that's what it looks like. And then it turns into something much more insidious. Yeah. And it, it can't happen in your 20s. Like it's, again, if that's really rare, stop worrying. You don't have Alzheimer's. <laughs> so, uh, acetylcholine is important in memory, especially hippocampus. It seems like cholinergic circuits are important here. Um, and it's weird because acetylcholine is severely damaged in the acetylcholine system is severely damaged in Alzheimer's disease. It almost looks like it's targeted. There are, in a way, Alzheimer's disease, the way it works, looks like it was built by some, probably that Philip Cudahar guy and the CIA built it together to destroy people's brains. Like, I mean, it really, it's insidious how it works. It looks like it goes after cholinergic synapses. It's preferential. Of course, it does affect other systems, though. It's not like it's... It doesn't discriminate. So what are the effects on the memory, then? 
Um, it's not advancing. It's not heavier when Steve Iker. Oh, it's not advancing at all. Oh, come on. Computer. Oh, there it goes. Okay. So there are episodic effects. And any, any of us here, I think many of us have experience with Alzheimer's with, with, with relatives and stuff. Forming new memories is difficult for Alzheimer's patients. Um, it can be difficult to the point where people, at first people with Alzheimer's can take care of themselves uh, pretty decently if it's early on onset. They, they can really do okay. But the problem is, we don't, you don't really realize how important everyday memory is, remembering things like, did you turn the stove off? There's a wonderful scene in The Sopranos. There's a lot of wonderful scenes in The Sopranos. There's a great scene in The Sopranos where Tony's talking to his mom on the phone. And she's forgotten that she has mushrooms that she's frying on the stove. And the house goes up on the lights on fire. And she, of course, blames Tony for it and eventually has a contract out on him, along with Tony's uncle. Sopranos is a great show. That's not a spoiler. That's season one. And Junior actually gets Alzheimer's and shoots Tony. Okay, now I'm getting into season six stuff, and that really was pretty bad. Too bad. You should have watched it better. <laughs> show ended in 2006. You should have watched it. You know what Vince Gilligan says? He says that two weeks after, that's no longer a spoiler. You have a two-week window. The guy created uh, Breaking Bad and then Better Call Saul. He says you have a two-week two window where you can't talk about a show. After that, it's okay to talk about a show. His voice so doesn't fit the way he looks. I love it. He just looks like this regular guy. But he talks like he's sitting on his porch with his shotgun drinking a mint julep. It's, just, it's, it's so weird, you know? Now, eventually, semantic effects do show up. So if you know anybody with Alzheimer's, you've seen this, where they don't know what a cat is anymore. Right? So it starts out where they can't remember if they turn the stove off. They, again, what they will remember, however, is what it was like during World War II. And they will tell you those stories over and over and over. Why? Because that's all they got. They can't remember what they did yesterday. But they can remember all that other stuff's already in there. So forming new episodic memories becomes very diff is difficult, but all, and again, in some respects, this is not that different from... It doesn't look different. It is different. But it doesn't look different from what happens generally with old age. Right? I remember my great-grandmother. She lived to be 86. And she would tell stories about the early 1900s because she was alive then, which was pretty cool. And I remember her telling a story about people fighting a fight. She lived in northern... Uh, not very far north, like Kamaraska in Quebec and talking about fight, fighting fires, forest fires, and how they would go make dinner for the guys that were fighting these fires. And she told that story to me like 800 times. <laughs> but it was a great story, so it's like, okay, Granny, that's cool, I'll agree. She also looked just like the Granny on uh, Tweety Bird, you know? It was almost like you'd hear, when she walked by. And I think she had that same dress. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that happens all the time. They'll just tell the same story. But that's because it's available. My grandmother, she did have some, I forget what the hell it was. My great-grandmother. Then my grandmother lived to be like 
98 or something? 96? Just died last year? That's crazy. It's crazy. Semantic effects eventually do happen. And again, this ha and it's interesting when you do see people that, you know, you see the interviews of people that live to be 107 on TV, and they'll talk, they'll interview them, and they're sitting there, they don't have no idea why the TV cameras are there, and they're, if I, turn, if I ever get to be 107, I don't want, I don't want TV coverage. I'll let, let that be known. Um, but, They tell them story. They, they can tell an old story from way long ago, right? But they still really don't know why the TV cameras are that kind of thing. And you'll see that. The difference is that's gen, that's regular aging. Alzheimer's disease way worse. It's always the same too. They always find that guy who's lived to be 120. Well, I uh, smoke four packs of cigarettes a day and drink bourbon. And as soon as I get up, but I keep drinking it. And uh, I really eat nothing but bacon. Uh, <laughs> and I, I eat handfuls of butter. <laughs> and then that shows up on, you know, Huffington Post, right? Longevity diet, cigarettes and bacon. Um, <laughs> okay. Retrieval cues don't help. This is the difference between Alzheimer's and people that are just generally getting older. With people that are generally getting older, and their things are slowing down, they, they, they have forgotten that they put the kettle on. If you remind them, they go, oh god, you're right. The Alzheimer's patient, that doesn't help at all. That's the big difference. Because see, the stuff never gets in. It's never been encoded with the Alzheimer's patient. With your 95-year-old grandmother, you go, Granny, didn't you put some cookies in? <laughs> yeah, I'm so stupid. I'll go take the medicine. Because she's old. Do something nice for the old people. Last thing that goes on to learn stuff, skills, things like that. Ability to just basic human skills, you know, the ability to talk, but you can't talk about anything anymore. You'll see things like people with Alzheimer's that are actually able to still say, for example, sing, but they, they don't really talk anymore. They're able to play an instrument they, they, they know how to play. They can't learn new songs, but they can, they can pick up a guitar if they can play guitar, sit down at the piano and stuff like that. It's pretty cool. And people are always like, ooh, that's amazing. No, it's because it's a it's a skill, it's a different kind of memory. It's, it's amazing in a way, I guess. Um, treatment for Alzheimer's. Uh, drugs targeting the cholinergic system uh, are what people are working on. And of course, you have to keep in mind that this isn't just affecting the victim, but it's also affecting his or her family, right? So, when you've got uh, an elderly relative who's living with you and they've got Alzheimer's, they need somebody around all the time. They literally do. You know, and I remember with my dad when not that he had Alzheimer's, um, he had a brain tumor. But I remember it was weird me talking to him when he was a kid, and it was like, whoa, the table's turned here. When he uh, <laughs> ripped the IV out of his arm, and after he had a long operation, and he pointing at it, it's an idiot. You ripped the thing out of your arm, and you got—that's why it's bleeding, and you've got. No. Will you just stop it? It's like I was talking to you. Like I sounded like him talking to me when I was four. 
And then I, I, I told him over and over, I said, don't you've been ripping these out of your arm. He said, no, no. Hey, I said, yes. <laughs> so he remembered it. But he was also paranoid that everyone in there was trying to kill him. Like, Dad, these are doctors and stuff, so they're trying to help him. No, no. He'd say that, and then he'd just throw in a whole lot of real, really real profanities that, you know, I won't even repeat to anybody. My dad was the best swearer ever. Which actually shows, interestingly enough, that's controlled a different part of your brain than where regular speech is controlled. Uh, the idea of using neural growth factors promising. This is not going to reverse it, it's going to slow it. You've got to get rid of the tangles and rid of the plaques. I don't know how we do that. The treatments are, will come. Um, reversal, I doubt. But if it can be stopped, or if it can be caught early and stopped, you're going to have a minimum impairment, right? But it's, it's, this is going to take a lot of money and a lot of thinking. By the way, it's not caused by aluminum pots or wearing deodorant. Don't worry about using aluminum pots. Don't worry about wearing deodorant. I encourage you all to wear deodorant. <laughs> as long as you're around me, please wear deodorant. Okay? Please. But also, the oh, aluminum pots will kill you. No, they won't. No, they won't. No, they won't. No, they won't. <laughs> Things get caught up by idiots and bloggers. Never did the deodorant. It's got aluminum. It's an antiperspirant. It has aluminum. It just stops you from sweating. And it'll make you crazy. You know who's doing that? It's Monsanto. <laughs> I get so tired. Um, one of the really key things here is rest and care for the family. I mean, family have to get out and not have to worry about old Uncle Steve. You need time for yourself. So you have to treat the family, not just the person who's got the disease. Um, Okay, some conclusions about this. There's not really, not really a lot of hope for most amnesics. Um, most amnesics can't function very well on their own. They can't have a real assisted living, right? I have a, um, my cousin, my second cousin, Sue, does stuff with people that have brain injuries. And they basically have a, an apartment building, kind of small apartment complex, in London, where people with brain injuries all live together. And it's like assisted living. It's very cool. Right? So, and a lot of those, those patients that she deals with, a lot of those, uh, I'd probably just call them clients, um, are people that have various kinds of amnesia. But the thing is, you can have not only attendants helping out, sort of almost, I wouldn't say nursing home kind of thing, because it's not. People have their own places and they live together. But depending on the kind of disorder that the person next door has, they can help out the guy over here. Right? So there's that sort of cooperative community stuff too. And they go out and do cool things in the community. Like it's actually really neat what Mike does and Susan does. It's, it's very cool. But for most people, I mean, they're not... You know, I'll tell you something. One of the best treatments ever in movies is the movie Memento. It's a tremendous treatment of how, of what it would look like to have amnesia. Had we actually gone, uh, most of you don't know this, but a few years ago there was a movement to maybe change how we presented courses at the university. We would do one course at a time. We'd do one course for three weeks and nothing else, then one course for three weeks and nothing else, um, which is kind of, it's a different approach. It's 
I, I, I really wanted that to happen. It didn't, because apparently it's worse than Hitler. But um, had we done that, one of the things that this class would do is we would watch that movie one day. And then the next day we would compare it to how the real world It's probably the best example. Because that guy actually has no episodic memory. In fact, he wouldn't even use the word episodic memory in that movie, which is pretty neat. Um, but he has semantic memory, he has skills, he can still be the investigator he is, right? And he just tattoos everything all over his body that he has to remember. It's a really, if you haven't seen it, it's a really neat movie. Um, but look at how that guy was dealing with it, right? In that movie. Most people aren't going to be able to. The thing is what? You can drive a car. No problem. And think about today with the GPS. It just tells you where to go. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and let's hope that if the maps are up to date, it doesn't just steer you off into Lake Superior, right? <laughs> There's not a lot of hope, but there is more hope every day, and I think I mentioned this the other day, with technology. Um, because you can, your memories can now be in a device. Not all of them, but you can have a lot of devices that can help you a lot more. And it used to be that with people with, say, short-term disorders, short like working memory disorders, they would learn about things like taking notes. They would have to be reminded to take notes all the time because they couldn't hold very much stuff in, 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 in consciousness. And then people started using electronic devices. But now it's to the point where all you have to learn how to do is push a button and talk to something, and it'll find out things for you. So things are getting better. And also neuroscience is, is, is moving pretty quickly. So the possibility of people with amnesia getting a lot more help because we can spot it more early, things like that, spot problems, you're never going to. And I, I, I will, I can, I'm certain of this. If you get a sudden stroke and your hippocampus dies, you're never, that's, you're done. Like, you're not going to ever be able to hold your memories. That's not going to be able to be fixed. You can't rewire your brain. The only thing that can, that can only happen on Star Trek episode Spock's brain. Worst Star Trek episode ever. Literally the worst Star Trek episode ever. Also the most sexist, and that says something for the 60s series. Where Kirk says, where are the leaders? Where are the men? Because um, it's an all-woman planet. Oh, Kirk. You horrible sexist man. I think I'll have sex with all the women here first, then find out what's going on the farm. <laughs> so, but we're going to be able to, if we spot things early, you know, it turns out most people by the time they're in their 60s have had a stroke, they just don't know it. When you go and get an MRI, they look and go, oh, there's a little lesion there. Probably had a stroke, and it's like, yeah, well. But if we can spot those things earlier, Right? Or you've had a, a bad enough bump on the head that you've got a lesion of some sort. Right? Or like the time in grade two where the bully kid picked me up by the ankles and dropped me on my head. That was nice. He now works in the French flying industry, I'm pretty sure, so I'm not really that concerned. Um, the biggest thing we can say about amnesics and memory disorders is they've helped us, under, from our perspective for this course, they've helped us understand normal function. Abnormality, and there's a great tradition of this in psychology, of abnormality helping us understand normal function. Right? So you can think of all kinds of different cases where, um, of disorders. But I think one of the bigger cases here is that, uh, you know, you think back to the brain behavior, if you guys have taken that class, you know that we talked about 
all these cases of people with uh, visual problems and you know cortical blindness, things like that. One of the ways that people found out the way that the, uh, the the brain processes visual information was by looking at, at, at uh, cases of people that have had you know bumps on the head or had, had strokes, whatever. So it's the same thing here. It's just told us a lot about how normal functioning works. Questions about this stuff? Got some time. Got some time. All right. Well, thanks, guys, and I will see you in the future. podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want. Okay. Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. 
Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.